Please join us for John eleven thirty-two through 36. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and grossly trouble. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jews, Jesus wept. So Jews said, See how loved him. Good job. All right. Our uh, passage, our sermon text today comes from uh, Lamentations, the book of Lamentations. I'll be reading chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nation, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her duress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festivals. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer. They find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the day of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from day of old. When her people fell into the hands of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her for they have seen her nakedness she herself groans and turns her face away her uncleanness was in her skirts and she took no thoughts of her future therefore her fall is terrible she has no comforter O lord behold my affliction for the enemy has triumphed the enemy has outstretched out his hands over all her precious things for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary those whom you forbade to enter your congregation all her people groan as they search for bread. They made their treasures for food to revive the strength. Lord, look and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see. If there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which is brought upon me, which the Lord has afflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hands they were fastened together. They were set upon his neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord is trodden as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. 
My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretched out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I call to my lovers, but they deceive me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strengths. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been rebellious. In the street, the sword beraves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. Uh, we are starting a new series this Sunday that uh, I am entitling Lament for Lent, in which we are going to work through the book of Lamentations. Now, uh, before you, we begin, uh, and it's probably apparent from this scripture reading, uh, I feel like I need to warn you in advance that Lamentations is a difficult book. Uh, it is not a feel-good uh, time here, uh, and that's probably why you've actually never heard a sermon from Lamentations, much less a whole sermon series. Uh, I confess that I uh, am entering this with a sense of trepidation, but also a trust in the fact that uh, all Scripture is profitable. And I think this is a message we need uh, for reasons that I hope to draw out. Um, as we enter this time of Lent, this is the time in which we reflect on the sufferings of Christ. And so in that way, I think Lamentations is a perfect book to study. Uh, Lamentations forces us to focus on subjects that we would rather avoid. Pain, suffering, loss, grief are all explored in great depths in this book of Lamentations. And it is my hope that studying this book will accomplish a few things. It will allow us to think more deeply about all of these and their meaning in our lives. Also the lives of those around us. And also why Christ's sufferings leading up to the resurrection are so important to the story of Christ. Now, before we get into Lamentations itself, we need to answer a couple of questions. First, what do we mean when we use the word lament? What is a lament? Second, what is Lamentations lamenting? Okay, so first, what is a lament? So I think the best way to think of it is it's like a genre, okay? It's, a, it's kind of a category. It is something that can be expressed orally. It can be written. Uh, usually it's written in poetry or song. And the key characteristic of a lament is that it passionately expresses grief of a tragedy or a loss, okay? The language of the lament is usually stylized, it's usually poetic, it's, it's over the top, and it uses lots of imagery. And that's because laments are not intended to communicate facts or propositions. Uh, instead, uh, you know, they're not meant to lead to some kind of rational conclusion. We can't build a syllogism out of them. Instead, laments are meant to be felt 
They're meant to be experienced. Reading through Lamentations it, it is more uh, not so we can go home and learn uh, a few things. Uh, it's more for us uh, to, to go through. This is something that we will experience. That is what Lit is about. And that's why I think Lamentations is helpful. Now, lament literature is something that's found throughout the ancient world. Uh, and it was an important part of the liturgy of ancient Israel. Uh, part of the worship of ancient Israel consisted in studying laments. In fact, it's estimated that probably one-third of the book of Psalms are lament psalms. Okay, So very much, remember, the, the Psalms was basically the worship book of ancient Israel. And so many of the Psalms are laments. Um, a modern example of laments, I'm trying to, trying to bring this home, kind of update it, give us some kind of feel of this more than something kind of abstract. Uh, I think it's something like the blues, okay? So the blues are a, a type of lament. They're, they're a lament that originated in the uh, African-American community uh, to express the suffering and hardship that they felt. And the point of their performance is for the hero, hearer to identify with the feelings of the song and in some way find comfort in knowing that someone else has experienced pain or loss or grief too. Uh, probably all of you at one point have been sad and uh, you've wanted to listen to a sad song and you know, you've almost strangely felt better about it because you were sad and the song was sad and you no longer feel that you're alone in the sadness. Someone else understands where you're coming from. Uh, any number of country music songs uh, act this way as well. Something I'm more familiar with. Yeah. So the point of a lament is that it is not optimistic. It's not a positive affirmation that we so often uh, want to find in our church services and in our interactions with those who experience grief. On the contrary, lament is meant to draw us in so we experience grief along someone else who has felt it. Now that we understand what lament is, we need to understand what Lamentations is lamenting. Uh, so Lamentations was written after the greatest tragedy of ancient Israel, the destruction of the Jerusalem by the Babylonian army under King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 BC. And I know we talk about that a lot. A lot of you have probably heard when I talk about the Old Testament, me going back to that again and again. You're probably almost rolling your eyes now like, uh. Like we didn't know that where it was going for. But that's because uh, this really was a big deal. It had a huge influence in much of Jewish thought. So much of our understanding of the Old Testament and therefore the New Testament depends on realizing this incredible psychic impact of the fall of Jerusalem and the exile on the minds of the Jewish people. So for some historical background, I'll just keep this brief, but for years, Egypt and Babylon had fought for control over Judah, and it had created an atmosphere of fear and confusion. Eventually, Babylon overpowered Egypt on the world stage and then installed a puppet king named Zedekiah on the throne of Judah. But after 10 years, King Zedekiah decided he had had enough of Babylon, and he rebelled provoking the invasion of Judah by King Nebuchadnezzar. After a two-year siege and all the accompanying horror of starvation and famine that came along with that, Jerusalem fell. The Babylonians, angered by Jerusalem's stubborn two-year resistance, completely and utterly destroyed the city and burned the temple to the ground. 
In fact, Zedekiah was taken away in chains and his three children killed in front of his eyes and then his eyes gouged out so the last thing he would ever see was the death of his three children. Much of the population of Judah was removed to Babylon. Those left behind uh, with the dest- saw the destruction of their political, commercial, and domestic life. Nothing would ever be the same again. Their suffering and grief was immeasurable. And it is here amidst this incredible devastation that we come to the book of Lamentations. Now, before we look at the text itself, I want to take a, I want, I want to bring a, a, a kind of examine, point out two features of Lamentations that are important, but they're not going to be obvious to you as you read through this book. First, Lamentations is highly, highly structured and organized. The first four chapters, or there's five chapters in Lamentations, the first four chapters are organized as acrostics, uh, where each verse starts with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first verse of chapter one begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, the second with Bet, the third Gimel, and so on. Uh, Just like we might say A, B, C, D, E, F, you know. Um, Now, it may seem a little weird to use such a, a, almost a cute device like that as something as serious as Lamentations. And the reasoning is debated highly among scholars. However, I think the best explanation is that this structure provides some sense of order amid the chaos and devastation that was all around him. It would be almost impossible to wrap, uh, uh, to wrap your head around everything that had happened. And this structure allowed the writer to pause and wipe the tears from his eyes and try to organize his thoughts in some way. Even something as arbitrary and simplistic as the order of the alphabet must have provided a small bit of order into a universe that had become completely unhinged. Now, interestingly, the pattern of this acrostic changes as Lamentations advances. Chapter 1 and 2 are very similar. They're composed of 22 verses in which the number of, uh, which, of course, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. They don't have vowels in the Hebrew alphabet because you don't need vowels. Uh, That's just something extra. Um, And each verse, which consists of three lines, starts with the consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 becomes even more structured. It's got 22 verses, but all three lines of each verse start with the, the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then things change. Chapter 4 follows the acrostic pattern, but instead of three lines, it drops down to two. And then chapter 5 has 22 verses, but they don't begin with the, with the, with the consecutive letters. It's almost like it abandons the structure partly. Now, we'll talk about the reasons for this change. I just want to note it now while I'm talking about the acrostic because it's pretty interesting. Now, the second interesting feature of Lamentations, and this is what I think is is pretty cool. This is one of the reasons I wanted to uh, examine this book is that it's composed of multiple voices. Over the course of the book, we will hear at least four different witnesses to the destruction of Jerusalem. They're characters. Each character speaks from their limited view and their context, and they're speaking their own truth. But, of course, since they're uh, limited, it can only be a partial truth. No voice is given priority in Lamentations, and so we were left, in a way, with a picture that is unsettled, unresolved, and open-ended. If you are looking for nice, tidy conclusions in the next few weeks, you will not get them. Uh, But, 
My point is that's part of the book. And I think we do a disservice if we try to wrap it up in a neat way. The result, though, I think, is a rich and deep portrait that resists these final answers. And it's this nature of Lamentations that I find the most attractive because I think in it we sense honesty. We sense that someone's being real with us, that this is much more in accord with our own experience of sorrow and sadness, which at times lacks conclusions and answers. So with these points in mind, let us look at our text today. So chapter 5 is going to be divided into two sections of 11 verses each. So there's 22 verses in the chapter. There's a, you can divide it right in half. Okay, And the first 11 verses comprise the voice of someone I'm calling the narrator. The last 11 verses are spoken by a different voice I'm going to call Daughter Zion, who personifies the fallen city of Jerusalem. Now, the reason I call the first voice the narrator, and I didn't come up with that, by the way. I mean, there's scholars, and this is how they talk about them, so don't think I'm, like, you know, super smart or anything like that. Um, The first voice, the narrator, and the reason he's called the narrator is because this person seems to know the whole story. He doesn't interact. He just looks. The narrator is an observer. Uh, He's distant from the events. His role is to provide an objective perspective. Uh, His observations center uh, mostly on the distance daughter Zion has fallen because of this tragedy. She is lonely that was once full of people. She was a princess, but she has come a slave. And it's this reversal that the narrator finds most shocking. He details all the different aspects of this reversal. First, Jerusalem has lost her high status. She was a princess is is now a slave. Second, she's lost her freedom. No longer is Jerusalem the capital of an independent nation. She is an exile and hard servitude. Third, she has lost her purpose. The text tells us none come to her festivals anymore. Her gates are desolate. What's the point of being a holy city if you don't have festivals and no one comes? Fourth, she's lost her community. Over and over, Jerusalem is described as alone. None comfort her. And those who were her friends are now her enemies. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this narrator, so the narrator's objective, he's distant. He focuses on this fall from grace, okay, this reversal. He is certain also as to the cause of this strategy. As verse 5 says, it is God that has afflicted daughter Zion because of the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 8 says that Jerusalem has sinned grievously. For the narrator, from his objective black and white viewpoint, Jerusalem brought all of this on herself. Many of these concepts are derived from the book of Deuteronomy. A lot of this language comes from Deuteronomy. It's part of the Deuteronomistic theology, as we learned about in Sunday school class today. That's an inside Sunday school joke. If you weren't in Sunday school, you don't think that's very funny. If you were in Sunday school, probably also not funny. But uh, Deuteronomy was very clear that God gave the Israelites the land, but they were expected to behave according to the Torah and to exclusively serve God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strengths. Those were the central commands of, the, of Deuteronomy, of the Torah. 
This was part of the covenant that was so foundational to Israel. The covenant wasn't, you know, kind of contrary to what we think of it. It's not so much a series of ethical norms as it was about loyalty to God and only God. And the narrator vividly expresses that Jerusalem has been disloyal and broken this covenant. She is described as an adulterous wife who repeatedly cheats on her husband. As a result, she has incurred the curses of the covenant, terrible as they may be. Deuteronomy said as much. For the narrator, is, for the narrator it's as simple as that. The tragedy is divine punishment for sin. However, the narrator is not given the last word here. You often think that that's what the Bible's about, about sin and punishment, about justice, but that's not what happens here. We're going to find that Lamentations, terrible as it is, and uh, lacking in so many conclusions, one thing it is not is simple. Daughter Zion also is given a voice. She is allowed to speak, and her voice strongly contrasts with the narrator's distant black and white viewpoint. She is given the last 11 verses of the chapter equal to that of the narrator. And she actually interrupts the narrator in verse 9, demanding to be heard. If you look at verse 9, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The cry for God to take notice becomes daughter Zion's chief demand. She finds herself alone in isolation, demanding recognition. There is no one to comfort her. Lamentations 1 says that over and over again. In fact, it's really the only place where the narrator and daughter Zion's view overlap. Both speakers recognize the isolation of daughter Zion. Both the narrator and daughter Zion herself describe her as not only alone, but starving, naked, vulnerable, with no comfort. She demands for all those who pass by to look and see her. In verse 16, she says that her comforter is far from her. Her lovers have deceived her. Her priests and elders have perished. Her enemies have heard her troubles and they're glad for it. So overwhelming is her loneliness that it causes the narrator, this dispassionate, distant, objective narrator, to interrupt her. In verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The problem is that everyone has abandoned her. And so she calls to God in faith, really, holding the belief that if God were to see her suffering, God would feel pity for her and answer. Now, daughter Zion is under no illusions. She accepts she is responsible. She knows that God is involved, but she still believes God would be moved by her pain and grief. There is no sorrow like her sorrow. Her lament reflects her belief that God still might care about her and be moved to act out of his covenant loyalty. She ends her lament with a demand for God to see her. Look, Lord, for I am in distress. The problem here is that we get no answer from God. God does not answer daughter Zion's pleas in this passage, nor will he answer in any other place in Lamentations. If you're expecting a feel-good series, it's not going to happen. We hear from multiple voices in Lamentation, 
But the one voice we do not hear is God's. God is mentioned all throughout. The voices long for God to answer, to comfort, to explain, or give really any response at all. Yet God remains silent. And the silence of God is probably the most disheartening part of this book. It's what makes us uncomfortable. It's why no one preaches from it. The relationship to the people, to God embodied by the covenant and the Torah was essential to their identity. It was what made them who we are. What is an Israelite? It's someone who is in covenant with God, Yahweh. It was the God who led them out of Egypt and gave them the promised land. And he no longer seemed to be a part of their story. Who does that make them now? It's a deeply painful place that daughter Zion finds herself. It's the same tragedy, though, that happens to someone who is active and uh, who now has cancer and it restricts them to immobility. It's the same tragedy that happens to a person who once quit, uh, carried great responsibility to their job but finds themselves unemployed. Or maybe a student who was really good at a particular subject or a sport and finds himself struggling in class or doesn't make the sports team. When these things that so form our identity are taken away from us, we are left in utter despair. We may not be as survivors of a siege by ancient Babylonians, but I think we can relate. Lamentations forces us to ask, for someone who has been undone like daughter Zion, where is hope? Why does God not answer? Why is God silent? God answered Job, the innocent sufferer. Are we left to conclude that God has no answer for the guilty sufferer? Is daughter Zion's punishment justified? Are we to be angry that God would do this to daughter Zion? Do we lament along with daughter Zion? Do we say she brought it on herself? These are the questions we are left with. The question is, lamentation forces us to ask. It doesn't have to be this way, though. There are other laments. There's several in the Psalms and at least two in Jeremiah in which God responds to them. And, he, and, and this makes lamentation's lack of response even more startling. However, it also leads to the conclusion that the lack of response is a choice on the part of the author. And that means... This choice to not have God respond has a purpose and a meaning. So trying to find this purpose and meaning, what could possibly be the reason for lacking a response? With this in mind, what I want us to do now, and to answer this question, is to look at our second scripture reading from John 11. Now this passage is probably a familiar story to you. We know this story all the time. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. You recall that Jesus was close to a family that lived in the city of Bethany, composed of two sisters, Mary and Martha. They pop up all the time in the Gospels. And then their brother, Lazarus. Jesus was told by Mary and Martha that Lazarus is ill. And Jesus' response to this was uh, to say to Mary and Martha, the illness would not lead to death and in fact would be used to bring about the glory of God. So confident is Jesus that he remains in another town away from Bethany and away from Lazarus for two more days. Jesus and his disciples eventually travel to Bethany, but by that time they learned that Lazarus had been dead for four days. 
Mary and Martha are understandably confused by this turn of events. They both expressed to Jesus that had Jesus been there, Jesus could have healed their brother and Lazarus would not now be dead. And here's what I want to focus on in this passage. This is why I broke these verses out of this story. Our passage tells us that when Jesus saw the sadness of Mary and Martha and Lazarus' friends, he does what? He weeps. Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Kids, if you have to memorize the Bible verse, there you are. And when everyone around sees Jesus weeping and says, look how much, they say, look how much Jesus loved Lazarus. However, that's not where the story ends. Doesn't end with Jesus weeping. Deeply moved, Jesus goes to the tomb, tells Lazarus to come out. Lazarus gets up and walks out of the tomb. John tells us that Jesus did this so that everyone would see the glory of God. So the story begins with Jesus stating that Lazarus' illness would be used to reveal the glory of God. And it ends with the revelation of the glory of God. It's a happy ending. John is clear that this was his plan all the way, that this was Jesus' plan all the way along. And so this is why Jesus delayed instead of immediately traveling to Bethany to heal Lazarus. Now, here's my question with this story. Something that's always kind of confused me. Here's the question. Why does Jesus cry? Why does John leave that detail in there? Because if you read the story, if, it's like if Jesus knew he was going to heal Lazarus all along, And if everything was going to end happy, why does Jesus cry? In fact, the story reads like Jesus was crying five minutes before raising Lazarus from the dead. So why does he cry? Not only cry, the Greek word here, a dacruzen, is a different word for what Mary and Martha do. A dacruzen carries the idea of a quiet deeply emotional grief that results in tears. In other words, there's nothing performative about this. It is from the heart. And I can think of only one explanation for this, and it's this. Despite knowing the outcome, despite knowing that everything will soon have a happy ending, despite knowing that in five minutes his friend Lazarus will be alive again, the pain and suffering and death that his friend Lazarus experienced is still a very real tragedy. And it so affects Jesus that it moves into tears. Jesus may have come to fix it, but it still hurts. And by weeping, Jesus affirms that it hurts. So what is the purpose of God's silence and lamentation? I think it's this. The purpose is to allow the voice of grief and pain and suffering to be heard. Any answer by God would totally stifle, would overwhelm the expression of lament, and thus it would silence the voice of the victim. This means that lamentations is an affirmation of the victim. Lamentations allows the sufferer to cry in all the various ways represented by the various voices and to express that feeling of hurt and hopelessness in a way that allows those voices to be heard. It allows us to participate in them today, 2,600 years later. We know the rest of the story. 
Deuteronomy tells us the rest of the story. After Israel is punished, she will be given a new heart and a new covenant and her relationship with God fully restored. That is the good news. But the point of Lamentations is there are times when we are not yet at the happy ending. And it is not appropriate to jump to the head of the, ahead to the, to the end of the story. Lamentations is an affirmation and the pain and even anger of the sufferer. Lamentations is an acknowledgement that this world hurts. And that even if you have been hurt and do not see the end, even if you feel abandoned and see no light at the end of the tunnel, that your voice is heard. You too are part of God's story. You have not been left out about it. You've got a whole book in the canon about it. And that is holy too. Your anger and your tears and your agony are as much a part of the story of the faith as the hymns of grace and peace and love. Jesus cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what the book of Lamentations tells you is that you get to do that too. And that there are times when that might be appropriate. I actually was uh, spending some time with some friends of mine recently. And uh, I shared with them some of these ideas to try to gain their input. And uh, one of my friends had lost a mother from cancer at a much too young age. She died very young when he was a young adult. And he told me that he remembered, still remembered, the anger and sadness he felt at that time. And he wished the church had told him that that was okay. That the anger and sadness could be affirmed and could be a part of his faith rather than something he was supposed to feel guilty about as if it was wrong. Too many people said to him, she's in a better place, or tried to comfort him with the big picture, quoted Romans 8.28 to him. All that's true. All those came from a good place even. But it was not time for that. He told me how much he would have appreciated the idea of being loud and even given permission to feel bad and even angry, and that that too was part of walking in faith. God's silence in Lamentations, I think, is holy restraint. It refuses to ignore or bury or hide the pain of this world, but instead allows it to be seen and grappled with and given dignity and honesty and the seriousness it deserves just as Jesus did by crying at the death of his friend Lazarus. Those of us who have lost our identity, who feel abandoned, who have been beaten down by life and are hurt, and who live in a world that only knows the Friday and Saturday of Holy Week and is still very far from Sunday, should know that God embraces their pain as well and that lets their pain stand as a testimony that the world is broken and needs healing. Because here's the thing about the suffering of Christ. It was not for Christ's own sake that he suffered. Rather, Christ suffered in solidarity with all of those who have suffered and will suffer. Christ went to the cross and he was crushed by the great forces of history, violence, and oppression, and did so on the side of all the losers of history who were also crushed by violence and oppression. Christ experienced sorrow, loss, grief, and pain hand in hand with all those who have ever felt sorrow, loss, grief, and pain. So Lamentations is a book for those people that the world, history, and all too often the church has ignored. 
overlooked and shoved aside. Lamentations refuses to let us do the same, and that's why we need Lamentations. Lamentations gathers the tears of the world, both ours and others together, and demands they be heard. It's a witness to the pain and the brokenness of this present age. For us Christians, then, Lamentations is a necessary antidote to our saccharine churchy smiles, and so allows us to feel and experience and work and help others through grief and sorrow in a more complete way. Lamentations forces us to dwell on the Friday and Saturday of the Holy Week. And that's important because for all too many, grief and sorrow are more the facts of their life than hope and happy endings that we might know. We need to know that Scripture and God speaks to them in this place as well. Lamentations gives language and even comfort by affirming those who are sad and broken where they are, not just where they one day will be. Lamentations exposes the pain and the suffering, and it refuses to deny it. Only by exposing suffering can there be healing, reconciliation, and justice. We are wrong if we deny one bit the horror of the cross. We are also wrong to ignore the pain inherent in life. Resurrection Sunday will come. There'll be a time for that. But until then, God in his silence has assured that other voices will be heard too.